welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out in addition to self-published works. I have a master's degree in art education. I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on gender critical prison studies and museum studies, and I also make self-published comics. Hello, Remus. Hello. It is, this is our July episode, July 2020. Yeah. Just to introduce, um, this is our 32nd episode, and it is going to be on propaganda. Mm-hmm. This episode was inspired by the articles I've been seeing uh, circulating around about cop propaganda, uh, specifically the way like shows like uh, Law and & Order and Brooklyn Nine-Nine heroize the cops. Mm-hmm. We had talked about doing a propaganda episode like way, way back uh, when we first recorded episode 7 in 2017. So that's um, the episode 7 is the violence in comics and how it affects us. And what that episode sort of talks about was the ways in which there's this myth that fictional violence causes uh, specifically teenagers to become violent themselves Mm -hmm. and how that is a myth. It's not true. But we sort of talked about at the... If I remember correctly, it's sort of towards the end. We do uh, mention that propaganda does affect the way Mm -hmm. people can perceive something. And so we're finally coming back around to it because it feels really pertinent to Mm -hmm. um, the conversation that's happening right now. Yeah, yeah, because I I think that was the that's actually in my like in my notes to myself, too, is that idea that um, the point we made, right, is that it's not like a one to one. You see someone shoot someone in a comic, you're going to go outside and shoot someone. Um, But there are certain dehumanizations of different groups of people and things like that, which is propaganda does impact people. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one in terms of, and I was also thinking about when, when Kathy suggested this to me, the, uh, cop propaganda or copaganda. Um, and, um, and when I, so when I first started researching my section, I looked into sort of where that came from and what I found sort of led me to this article from 2016 by Adam Johnson on Alternet called The Eight Most Popular Types of Copaganda, How the Police Play the Media. Mm. To be clear, and uh, Johnson says this in the article, um, copaganda is a term that comes from police abolitionist activists. Um, mm. It just sort of like then made it into the the more mainstream language and is getting talked about a lot now because of su- the sudden like awareness of um, like ab- abolition as a topic. Right. So um, I, I just wanted to sort of like gloss briefly like uh, in this article, uh, and it seems like maybe this is sort of the original thrust of propaganda. It's talking a lot about news um, media. Mm. Um, so there, this is like a list of eight different types of um, news things, basically, that uh, work in favor of the police to sort of like work against. Um, OK, I'll just quote him. He says, um, Johnson says. Copaganda is any news story that uncritically advances a police department's image or helps undermine reform efforts. Mm. So things like the conveniently timed how dangerous the job is story. Um, The bogus threat, uh, which we have a really good example of recently in the milkshake, the bleach milkshake incident from New York. 
Right. The Shake Shack. Right. Which wasn't true. Didn't happen right. even a little bit. But like the, you know, we a bunch of stories ran about, oh, they're trying to poison the cops. Um, pink washing, right? Which is when um, people use sort of LGBTQ rights to uh, quote, what they say is, quote, whitewash negative aspects of an otherwise reactionary institution, right? Mm. Smearing police vic- uh, victims of police brutality, the myth of community policing, so stuff like this. And um, I- and I think, like, what Kathy and I are both responding to is the shift from, like, talking about propaganda in terms of just media news to also thinking about, like, how do popular fictional stories um, right. also affirm these things? And I think, I mean, I'm going to talk a bit about, like, comics specifically when it comes to, like, l- portrayal of law enforcement and crime, because that's, like, my main interest. Um, mm-hmm. But I do also, like, I-, I think, like, it's also important to note that, like, these conversations have been happening for a really long time, even though it's, like, just now sort of um, hitting more mainstream news outlets. Um, yeah. So there is like a lot of like if you're interested in this, there is like a lot of like historical analysis um, about this sort of stuff. So and my section is going to be on the ways that schools can play a role in propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about history classrooms and talking about like things like anti-black um, imagery, caricature imagery um, in art classrooms. So yeah. that is what my section is going to be on. I realize I started out. Uh, sort of making the assumption that people had listened to our previous episodes, but just in case you haven't, me and Remus absolutely believe in <laughs> abolishing the police. Yeah, That's to where be clear. coming from with this. <laughs> uh, don't think it's any other way than that. Right. Yeah. 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 You ready? I am. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um. And also, and I think like part of the reason why I'm focusing because there's a lot of different ways to take I think our propaganda angle when it comes to comics. Um, but the reason I sort of settled on thinking about um, crime and how crime is portrayed um, is also because um, when I say I do critical prison studies, I like I like the thrust of my sort of academic work is about like abolition and the relationship between like abolition and trans liberation. So I'm like very interested in how law enforcement mm-hmm. and policing and all that stuff is portrayed. Um, and we've talked about crime. Crime yeah. comics were so such a huge part of comic book history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's huge, huge, um, and still like I, I mean, obviously, like just because a genre falls out of favor doesn't mean the conventions of that genre do right. Like they just transfer totally. different things. Yeah. So there is like a very literal relationship between comics and propaganda in the sense that there's like an established history of um, government sponsored or corporate sponsored comics. A good recent example of this that I'm not going to talk about but is worth noting is the Northrop Grumman deal with Marvel um, where they made – so if you're unfamiliar, Northrop Grumman is a um, company that does like – Like military weapons. Yeah, it's an aerospace and defense company that makes weapons – and tech for the military um they they had a deal with marvel marvel produced this comic that they were going to give away for free at um comic con that was like very blatantly a recruit a recruitment tool for (laughs) northrop grunman Mm. right um and that deal fell through because people were so outraged about it um but like that's not the first time that a company has worked with uh you know, the military or the government to produce a comic that is 
deliberately geared towards kids and trying to get kids and young adults in to join the military or to join these companies or to you know support the government or whatever right Mm -hmm. um so briefly i'm going to talk about um this sort of history um i have an article a 2014 article from um paul hirsch titled this is our enemy the writer's war board and representations of race in comic books 1942 to 1945 so Hirsch writes about the Writers' War Board, which was the main domestic propaganda org in the U.S. during World War II. And I think, like, oh, there's a lot – I'm not going to go, like, too deep into it, but um, especially sort of pre – so 40, the 40s is pre-Wortham, right? So sort of pre-Comics Code Authority, um, mm. which we've sort of talked about how that changed things. But, vi- like, this sort of, like, 30s to 50s um, World War II era um, has, like – a lot of like there's like a lot of uh analysis of like how comics were used to sort of um sh- shape public perception of the war mm. and particularly the people mm-hmm. we were fighting against right mm-hmm. quoting hirsch beginning in april 1943 the wwb writers war board used comic books to shape popular perceptions of race and ethnicity as well as build support for the american war effort wwb members concluded that the core traits of the comic book form its broad popularity comprehensibility emphasis on raw emotion and distinct lack of subtlety marked comic books as potentially useful delivery system for propaganda so I'm not going to, like, go I, – I, I wanted to shut out that article, and he does sort of go through and analyze how the Germans were portrayed, how the Japanese were portrayed, how um, Black Americans at home were portrayed, um, to sort of, like, talk about how the WWB-specific comic books, like, um, were trying to, like, you know, dehumanize Japanese and German people mm-hmm. um, and, like, prevent a race war at home, basically, and stuff like that. Um, mm. And there's a lot in general about, like – especially the world war ii era war comics enforced racial stereotypes and i'm but i'm gonna like switch away from talking about that um most of what i found focused on mainstream or monthly comics um often superheroes though not exclusively so most of what i'm gonna talk about kind of talks about those although i do want to (laughs) like i don't want (laughs) to i tend to be naturally suspicious of superhero comics but i don't want this to be like a ragging on superheroes thing (laughs) because like i think this is also true for other comics but i think like the reason that these get the most attention and when it comes to like this particular topic is that people are analyzing the most popular books um Uh, and like how those are shaped how because those are the ones that are going to be shaping the most sort of public opinion um and often mm. that is um like mainstream comics and superhero comics right most of what i have is from a book titled comic book crime truth justice and the american way which is from 2013 and was written by nikki d phillips and stacy straubel it's from a criminology lens um which i'm not fully trusting of um yeah but they do seem to be pulling from a lot of like critical criminology and they talk about like systemic racism and like um basically i found it palatable even if i don't necessarily trust or agree with can you define what criminology is yes so criminology is essentially the study of crime from a social perspective and uh so you know criminologists um don't always but often also do work with law enforcement right to mm-hmm. to like because they're because the goal is to the goal i think on paper is to like try to learn about crime to prevent it but like as with every field <laughs> um these things get sort of tricky 
And in ge- and the reason I'm suspicious in general is because I think a lot of like what I've seen of criminology does focus very much on like st- maintaining the system as is, maybe reforming it, but like not actual like an abolitionist lens, right? Um, yeah, totally. So, yeah. um, like I said, I think in this book, like it, it seems like they're more invested in like the social perspective, and I think a lot of their critique of comic portrayal of like crime is useful, but uh, obviously they're not. It's not perfect, so I just want to sort of caution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. But um, to quote them, although comic book villains exist only in the fantastical pages of comic books, their adventures communicate powerful messages about what motivates crime, at least in their world. Given the omnipresence of superheroes um, and other comic book characters spun off into Hollywood movies and video games, these villains become important cultural artifacts in understanding popular ideas about why individuals engage in criminal behavior. Um, given that most people in the world do not become experts in criminal behavior and criminology, uh, popular media representations about the cause of criminal behavior become important possible influences on the public's attitude about crime. And they sort of, what they've basically done in this book is they have like 300 comics that they use as case studies and they also um, do like surveys and stuff. So it was a very like sociological approach. Mm. So they say, we suggest that the causes and implications of criminal behavior featured in comic books ultimately reinforce retribution in our culture as a dominant philosophical approach to criminal justice policy. There is a conspicuous disconnect between the nature of crime causation and the implied policy messages found in the books. Comic books tend to frame crime as rooted deeply within the individual to the neglect of social, economic, or political causes. In particular, psychopathological causes of crime are often explicitly depicted, yet calls for retributive forms of justice often follow. Um, And they also point out that the graphic representation of villains ties back to a lot of what we actually talked about in the physiognomy and race episode, right? Yeah, totally. Right, that like there's certain... There's this idea that certain features show criminality and how, like, in so then in comics, because we rely, because a lot of the times comics rely on those sort of short codes, you end up sort of reinforcing this idea, right? That, like, oh, the villains all look like this, and that's how you know that they're a villain, which sort of continues to reinforce those bad ideas about physiognomy. Yeah, so that is episode 12, mm-hmm. and we'll link that as well. Yeah. So that was their chapter on <laughs> that was their chapter on <clears throat> villains. And then I just have um, one more thing. Um, they write there's they have a chapter on utopia <laughs> and and uh, sort of like how uh, community is depicted, which I thought was interesting. Um, so quoting in a manner reminiscent of political scientist Benedict Anderson's notion of imagined communities, comics explore the relationship between nostalgia and the desired utopian social order. Um, and the idea of imagined communities, for those that are unfamiliar, essentially Anderson um, came out with this, like came forth with this idea that's like incredibly influential. In um, I like we learned about it in my post-colonial seminar, um, but it's also like kind of just like in everything. <laughs> it's one of those like uh, academic ideas that kind of gets like around. Um, but essentially, Anderson argued that communities, like, what makes the nation is this imagined sense of everyone belonging to the same thing. Um, so it's not that there's, like, a concrete, mm. actual, literal nation. It's this, like, imagined community. Mm. That's a very, very reductive gloss, but it gets the message across. 
<laughs> so, um, continuing with them, um, continuing with the book. Thus, comic books can be seen as ideological tools similar to poetry, myth, and legend, filled with constructions of an idealized past and offering up ideas about community, identity, and belonging. Anderson suggests that the historic rise of print media was vital to bringing notions of community to a wider audience and gave birth to nationalism connecting people to common cultural artifacts and fostering cohesion among people that would never meet face to face. Um, important to that also is that it's capitalism. It's capitalism also. They don't, they don't mention that, but it's mm. also capitalism. Uh, <laughs> cultural anthropologist Arjun Apadurai notes that communications technology such as the internet has taken this further, connecting people from vast dif- distances and creating communities and national diasporas that further transcend geographical and temporal boundaries. American nationalism and patriotism have figured prominently in the construction of the utopian past in comic books. Mm. And then they continue that the contrast between the crime-ridden present and the hope for a better future sets up a fundamental anxiety that mainstream comic books describe and explore. In general, comic book stories are often a moral panic about the decline or complete demise of family, democracy, and freedom. The older order, often depicted as a white, middle-class community with strong family values, enviable social capital, and equality, is put in jeopardy by an overarching evil taking the form of criminal violence, which has annihilated a peaceful status quo. Existing law enforcement and judicial mechanisms are often depicted as ineffectual and broken, a crisis necessitating a superhero, which I'm going to circle back. I'm going to circle back to that point in a second. The hero is shown longing for the nostalgic past and fixated on an imagined community within the virtual world of the comic book. That imagined community is one that the reader can experience vicariously and may be a little more imaginative than notions of community and nationhood that are experienced in daily life. Uh, insofar as community and nationhood are always human constructs, even in their most real-world manifestations. So I think um, what's interesting to me there is that, like, tension between this idea of this imagined past that we're, and the imagined past, the, the, like, the hope for the future is a return to this imaginary past, right? Mm. Um, which I, is, like, a pretty accurate read, I think, of sort of the nostalgia of mainstream, like, a lot of superhero and, like, mainstream comics, right? Um, what's in, what's interesting to me, obviously, is this line about, um, the depicting of law enforcement is broken, because it is, like, the thing about the superhero genre, I think, that's so interesting to this uh, is because, like, the vigilante thing, it still affirms the systems of punishment that we have. Like, even if it's like, oh, the cops aren't doing enough, so I have to go out there by myself yeah. and beat up a bunch of bad guys, it still ends with them going to prison, <laughs> right? Like, it does. It's still, it's still punishment. It's still punishment. It's still policing. It's just um, yeah. th- a policing that acknowledges that cops are sometimes bad. So <laughs> it doesn't, like, it's not an actual, like, it's uh, the idea, like, um, when it says, like, they depict them as ineffective and broken, Often I think, like, that depiction is from a lens of, like, um, what they should be doing is killing more bad guys and not this isn't working because it's not actually helping people, <laughs> right? I mean, this is exactly what I'm going to be talking about in the way our history books are yeah. written, right? It's like we need a George Washington. We yeah. need this hero who's going to save us and go back. And, I mean, that is very much a certain perspective mm-hmm of america right america was once great yeah that is very much a Mm right-wing 
viewpoint is that there this idea of American heroism and also if you're thinking about that's all detective novels (laughs) yeah all action movies yeah right the vigilante who who realizes the system isn't working and needs to take it upon himself to fix that yeah and that's the thing is like I don't. There's a reason I don't want to write too much on superheroes is because it's not like a unique phenomenon to superheroes. Not at all. It's just that that's like the most visible genre, so it's where all the research is. But I mean, this is like the sort of thing where like I would be super interested to really spend some time looking at like how portrayals of um, conflict resolution show up in like more um, like indie comics or like the underground maybe. And like, you know, you know what I yeah. mean? And like, see, because I think like it, it's easy to look at like when there's actually cops on the page and be like, oh, here's how they're like doing this. I believe it was Ezra um, Clayton Daniels, who, who is a cartoonist. He's a writer and he also makes his own cartoons. He recently posted an edited version on his Instagram. He recently posted an edited version of the hero's journey Ooh. to talk about. Yeah, like so like the hero's journey is like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's all these different depictions on like Harry Potter. It's like this one hero has to save the world, right? And it, <laughs> that is like the manifestation of so much of what this yeah. is, right? And then so he did an edited version. I believe it's like about white supremacy. I'm going to look it up so I don't get it wrong. But it was really funny. It was really cool. Good. That actually ties um, really nicely into this. Um, I don't want to spend like too much time on this because I don't want to like talk too long about superheroes. But um, I have uh, Chris Gallagher, who is a comic studies person, right, um, has written a few articles about the relationship between like superheroes and fascism um, and sort of like this national sentiment. Um and I have this specific article called um, The Ku Klux Klan and the Birth of the Superhero, which is from um, 2012. And I, he he makes this argument that um, the prototype for the American superhero genre um, actually comes from the Klan and, like, this particular notion, like, uh, the first Ku Klux Klan. So, you know, historically, there's two Ku Klux Klans, right? There was the first one in the 1800s and then um a second one formed Mm. after that and i'll explain in a second but um he so this is just sort of the opening from this article um that i'm going to read from so quote when innocent people are brutalized villains go unpunished and corrupt police fail to act a hero must rise to save the country he loves his secret identity hidden behind a mask the grand dragon leads his team of loyal companions in a battle to restore law and order this cliched plot structure is familiar to anyone with a passing awareness of the superhero formula but this specific hero the grand dragon is unknown except to readers of thomas dixon jr's um 1905 once a best-selling novel the Clansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan. Dixon, while claiming to have taken no liberty with any essential historical facts, recounts a version of post-Civil War period in which the heroic clan rescues a victimized souse from the villainy of um, Negro rule. Although Dixon is relatively unknown today and no longer deserving of respectful prominence in the the history of American popular culture, (laughs) biographer Anthony Slide uh, in 2004 likens him to John Grisham as a popular author who once commanded a major American audience. Dixon's 1905 novel became the source for D.W. Grisham's 
more enduring but equally racist adaptation, The Birth of a Nation, a film so influential that it incited the reformation of the Ku Klux Klan with its 1915 release. So yeah, that's what I, when I say there's like two clans, there was an 1800s clan that ended, and then The Birth of the Nation, which was this hugely popular film, D.W. Griffith is still considered like one of like the most popular filmmakers, right? Um, the most influential. Mm-hmm. The Birth of a Nation was hugely, this, like, hugely, hugely um, racist film, and then the Klan reformed um, following that. So prop- propaganda just started yes. fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want to note the edit of the hero's journey that Ezra did is called The Gentrifier's Journey, and I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. No, that's good. So uh, Gallagher continues... Um, Although Dixon and Griffith's white supremacist rewriting of history is now reviled, their masked vigilantes entered the American consciousness as an admired figure. And I argue that the Klansman's characteristics, as introduced by Dixon, adapted by Griffith, and emulated by actual Ku Klux Klan members across the United States, continue to shape present-day superheroes. Oh, that's a heavy statement. I know. And then he continues, um, Vice-ridden communities and plots to conquer America became and remain central motifs of superhero narratives, and the superhero's ability to act outside the law, superseding an uh, uh, impotent government's police powers, is one of the character type's most defining qualities. The other primary traits, mission, secret identity, masked costume, and self-defining emblem, are also elements portrayed by Dixon and inherited by the superhero via Griffin and the second 19. 14 to 1944 Ku Klux Klan. Um, so, I mean, I would be, inter- I don't necessarily know if this is, he, I think this is, this article is like a very careful reading of um, superheroes broadly. Like, he does acknowledge the fact that, like, uh, Simon and Schuster, who came up with Superman, for instance, right, were Jewish men. And so their reaction, their creation of Superman was like a very deliberate sort of reaction to um, anti-Semitic um, fascist sentiment, right? And he and there's a famous comic called uh, Superman versus the Ku Klux Klan, yeah. which Gene Yang currently just did a new version called superman smashes the clan <laughs> um and i haven't read it yet but i have a copy yeah and um a, a huge a huge part of his argument is basically that like it, 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 there's this there's this sort of tension where um the first clan the 1800s clan which is the one that dixon's writing about right is the one that sort of like shapes the way that these genres formulate even though they very deliberately position the second clan as an enemy, um, like it narratively, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it, 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 I don't know if it's like a, I mean, I think it would be like an interesting to see. I, I, I didn't find if anyone had like um, responded to it. Um, but I do think there's something useful about thinking about how the thing that gets me here is the 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 point about Griffith, right? Because I think like yeah. that's a hundred percent accurate. That the birth of a nation was so influential on um, writing in general. So like you know, even if I think there's probably also other things that are shaping superheroes. Like I I like this because I think it's like a thing that sort of asks us to think about like if we go back far enough, like how how are these like sort of long running genres have swallowed whole um these uh white supremacist ideas um even if we don't realize that's what we are or people are trying to use them for other purposes or like whatever right yeah mm-hmm. um so i just thought that was like a, 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 a an interesting um no it's very intense yeah. yeah yeah no i like i'm glad that you found that yeah yeah 
also, I think, like, um, I do have a thing about, like, historical graphic novels, but maybe I'll save that because I know you're going to talk about how American history is taught. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think it's very interesting. Yeah. So my a colleague of mine primarily uh like her research focus a lot of the time is on like um educational graphic novels um so like books that are deliberately written to be educational tools which are very popular yes. by the way they're in all the scholastic book fairs they are some of the most best-selling books like those those kind of um educational comics yeah so she has um an upcoming article so this article is going to be out in um studies and comics sometime this year probably um so uh it's by brianna anderson um so keep an eye out for that and when it's published maybe we can link it but she's she writes about um the nathan hale one dead spy series um which are graphic novels about the historical nathan hale who has no relationship to the author um um, and it's basically these the way these um books work and you know i've been talking with her about this article for a long time so i'm very familiar with these books now um is that they're like it's the story of nathan hale sort of told right uh for kids and then there are these sort of paratextual elements um, that cr- kind of criticize the n- main narrative that's being told. So there'll be like, um, there's this thing called the, re- like there's these like research babies paratext thing where like he draws a bunch of babies like doing research for the comic um, and like hmm. correcting stuff sometimes and things like that. But like, and then this, the one, and then um, there's also this sort of paratextual, like, back, or, like, back matter, basically, right? So paratext means it's, like, not part of the main story. It's, like, either, like, on the sides or, like, at the end or, or you know, that kind of right. stuff. Um, there's also a mini-comic narrated, narrated by um, Crispus Attucks, a former slave. But she sort of talks about the tension there of, like, it's, on the one hand, you could kind of argue that, like, because this book is doing this stuff with the paratext, it could be, like, used to teach kids to think critically about um, how history is told. Um, mm. But on the other hand, when you put all of the stuff about marginalized people uh, in the back matter... <laughs> <laughs> literally marginalized yeah like so she writes that um by banishing crispus to the back matter where fewer readers venture hale isolates the black man's counter narrative from the primary narrative and creates an implicit hierarchy that portrays crispus story as a mere footnote to nathan's much lengthier retelling of the american revolution mm. as a result his presentation of crispus attackus as a secondary easily ignored paratext and reinforces the notion that history or at least the history most represented is written by the victors a troubling implication that lessens the impact of the mini comics critique of the dominant historical discourses endorsed in the first 100 pages of the text um Mm. so i just think like one i think this is a really interesting series the one dead spy series (laughs) but also i think like um this again like what sort of dominant narratives because i know you want to talk about um how people are taught to be citizens so maybe this is a good lobby for you (laughs) it is yeah thank you so much yeah so what I'm going to do in my section on education is I'm going to be talking about how, so how do schools play a role in this propaganda that's happening? So just like uh, Remus had talked about, these are going to be books, graphic novels that are taught in schools. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I wanted to point out is what is the purpose of teaching history? Why do we want students to learn history? Right. 
So this is from the book uh, Reconstructing History. Uh, it's the first edition. It's by Elizabeth Fox Genovese and Elizabeth Lash Quinn. This is from an essay inside the book. According to the criteria of the development of standards produced by the UCLA Center, one of the purposes of history education in the schools is to contribute to citizenship education. When citizenship education is a goal, then history education must teach not only how to think critically, but also which ideas and experiences unify our nation and which ideals and individuals deserve our admiration and respect. Mm. And what this did is this reminded me of a similar argument in why we must teach the canon in literature, which we talked about in episode 10, the canon. Right. Um, that's There are these certain books that all citizens should be able to share, right? We should be able to talk about we should all be able to know what Moby Dick is about and have that shared conversation. Yeah. Or something, right? Like, that's the idea of, like, citizenship, of this canon that we all share. However, in a country that was founded on racism, that canon and the idea of what a citizen is becomes strictly that status quo. This causes whiteness in education to become weaponized, mm -hmm. discrediting the experiences of anyone whose experiences don't follow that narrow definition of a citizen. This is such a good also like it, this ties back so well to the Benedict Anderson stuff that I kind of wish I had just pulled Benedict Anderson. Because <laughs> that is totally the whole thing is like... Um, you know, print capitalism allows these texts to get circulated and then you use the text mm -hmm. to sort of like get this idea that like everyone belongs to the same thing and that everyone else also shares. Because part of it is not just that everyone belongs to the same thing, it's that like the, you assume that other people also share the same qualities as you yeah. because you belong to this thing. <laughs> and that is truly the definition of white supremacy, yeah. right? Where this idea that that this is the one experience, mm -hmm. right, that we must all share. I really want to shout out a recent panel that I saw um, digitally. It was uh, titled The Conversation Ignored Too Long, Race and Racism in Education and Society, and it was run by the National Association of Independent Schools, um, and specifically the panelist uh, Liza Tulasan, um, who spoke about how schools were made to uphold whiteness and white supremacy and how schools need to divest from the white structure, mm -hmm. right? We need to decenter whiteness in our schools. It's not just, we can't just include other people. Like we can't just include Black History right. Month, right? We need to be decentering whiteness, right? Yeah. I think that's, this is the direction that education is going right now. This is the conversation that we're all having. And just like the title of the thing of the panel was, it's just, it's been ignored for too long. People have been asking this for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. right? It, sh it's <laughs> it should have already happened, right? right? Yeah. This decentering of whiteness in our schools. Yeah, because I mean, that's been the, that's the, um, the you know, the idea of um, decentering, right? Versus um, just adding to, right? Because um, right. the, the idea of just like adding stuff is like n 90s uh, multiculturalism, right? And it yeah. doesn't work. It never worked. You can't just add stuff. Yeah, and what I've been thinking a lot about is uh, like this, uh, not just defunding the police, right? What is abolition? Right. Right. It is abolishing these systems. Exactly. So what we need to do is we need to go back and find how we can abolish and dismantle and find a new way of piecing together the education that we really want our students to be having right now yeah 
Yeah. Um, so there was another article titled Early American History and the National History Standards written by Gary B. Nash. This article was very interesting to me. So it's from, from July 1997. And it seems like this article was written in defense of these national history standards because there was a giant right-wing backlash um, by figures like Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich. Oh. And this was in our lifetimes, right? This is our childhood. So this was like the idea that these national history standards are destroying our textbooks. <laughs> so would this have been pre-No Child? Yeah, this was like pre-No Child Left Behind. This is like Clinton era, right? Yeah, Clinton wrote this in. Okay. Right? Like, like you can go into the article. It was like Bush started it. Bush won. Right. right? So I wouldn't say this is like a deeply progressive national history no. I was, approach. I was four in 97, <laughs> so a little too young to have the. But this is the thing, right? Is 1997, you think that is sort of a long time ago at this point, but these textbooks aren't, like, even though this is when I was a child, the, the everyone who was teaching had already had decades of experience teaching, and they're not going to immediately yeah. start changing yeah. what they're teaching, right? So this these changes take decades. Yeah. When you're trying to change a school, they take a very long time. Yeah. So the changes that these this article specifically talks about is the um, early American history, and it sort of describes how teachers and historians arrived at the idea that early American history should include West African and indigenous influence along with the dominant European settler mm. narrative, right? So basically, they're pushing for this like idea of a congruing of three, quote unquote, cultures, but like these three groups, mm -hmm. which clearly Europe is large, Africa is large. <laughs> There are many different indigenous tribes. Right, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> but so like, th this is what they're pushing, right? They're pushing this idea that the white European settler narrative should be taught in equal steps with um, what the African influences were in North America and the indigenous influences, right, mm -hmm. of this of the American history. So to quote a part of the article, another criticism concerns the subject of historical agency in conservative circles. The quote unquote, great man theory of history is embraced as enthusiastically as when Thomas Carlyle wrote his famous words now inscribed in the great hall of the library of Congress that quote, history is the biography of great men. The National History Standards tries to strike a balance between traditional political history that stresses great leaders who, children have traditionally learned, set everything into motion, and the new social history that attributes agency to ordinary people who are more than clay in the hands of the potters at the top. Mm. I love that line. That's really good. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, you only learn about certain figures, right? Yeah. And you don't learn about the ordinary people. And this comes quote, back unquote, to ordinary people. This comes back to exactly what we talked about in that canon episode again. Because that that's literally how the canon is formulated, is that there's these, these specific important figures that we idolize right. and no one else matters right and like and no one else matters and we, and we talked about and i mean that episode like we talked about the fact that like that was a very deliberately constructed thing by a specific person so like yeah and um i, I think i do want to quote this so yeah. like part there was like a reaction to the argument another reaction to the argument was that including non-western people quote unquote again we've talked about our um problems with the terms western and non-western and eastern yeah. right um can become so sorry that including 
these people, these non-Western people, uh, can become romanticized. But I appreciate how this author agrees that perhaps it is romanticized, but that's definitely a bad faith argument in the, by the right wing. So, quote, this is a strangest reevaluation of American history, including an attempt to remedy the malign ne- neglect or vicious treatment of African and Native American history, does tend to romanticize those previously denigrated or to overlook the dark side of peoples previously ignored while seeming to reserve the most criticism for the European colonizers. This reflects something of the intellectual culture of the current generation of teachers who have tried to transcend the pious drilled-in history of earlier decades. While working to analyze American institutions and practices in a more penetrating way, they have attempted to help students appreciate and recognize the achievements and struggles of minorities and non-Western peoples. The initial version of the American National American History Standards shares this tendency to some extent. As thesis leads to ant- antithesis, And then synthesis, however, self-correction in a mature profession is certainly taking place. Hmm. I, this is, I, what I liked about this paragraph is he just, like, I I appreciate that he's talking about how these, these teachers, these well-meaning teachers trying to Mm -hmm. bring in and change this dominant narration. And then this, like, Rush Limbaugh kind of criticism that is like, oh, you're overly romanticizing. It's like, they, those influences weren't perfect either Mm -hmm. right (laughs) but again i feel like that is like such a bad faith argument Mm -hmm. like it is like um just because you're including other people doesn't mean you aren't (laughs) i don't know do you know what i'm saying i do it's like i mean there's like contemporary critique right about um overly like infantilizing almost right and yeah you when you're like only like Oh, these, you know, um, because you're not, you're still not giving those groups agency because you know what I mean? Like the way, and I think like, yeah, but at the same time, it is absolutely, I don't know. It reminds me of, um, there's this thing we talk about in museums. We we talked about in museum studies where like, um, a lot of times the language in like the one Asian art exhibit or whatever will be like over the top romanticizing it um to the degree that it yeah. be- then circles back around it becomes orientalism like you right. know what i mean mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah i like that the sense of uh the need for agency that type of thing yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway this author gary nash i kind of like him i'm gonna look up more of his work <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for more teaching resources uh the zin ed project um, so Howard Zinn, The People's History, he's got all sorts of wonderful materials available on his website. So I'm going to link that um, if you're looking for more people's history, right? Mm-hmm. Not just clay in the hands of great men. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good line. Yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was a lesson plan I developed uh, for my sculpture class, uh, specifically to teach my students about anti-black racist caricature in American history, specifically Jim Crow and minstrel propaganda, mm-hmm. right? So we're coming back to propaganda, and this was a tool that the United States used, right, to oppress um, black people. Um, the reason this felt pertinent is it was unusually common for at least one student per class to use uh, red lips on their sculptures that had deeper skin tones. This like imagery right. that is, just seems to continue to be perpetuated even into the 2000s, yeah. right? It has led to many uncomfortable 
discussions about how that image has a legacy of hate in this country and students often not knowing uh, that this was the case, right? This is just imagery that they've seen and they're repeating without a lot of analysis into why they're doing that. So rather than continuing to have conversations with my students after harm was done, it felt much more beneficial and frankly crucial to have preemptive mm-hmm. lessons about anti-Black propaganda. Um, I also want to note that this lesson plan was developed with input um, from a Black colleague who works in the multicultural office of my school because it's important for white people to not be working in a bubble without accountability mm-hmm. and that community input is always a plus in diversity, equity, and inclusion work such as this. So I spend a whole day on this, over an hour in this classroom, maybe 80 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts out with classroom norms. Um, so asking things to students, to, uh, so asking students to be present, to reserve judgment, to challenge themselves. And oftentimes I also give permission to students if they feel uncomfortable or um, like if they could potentially, like a content warning, right. if they could feel like they could be potentially upset and triggered by this information, they are free to leave my classroom or do something. I often give them clay or something to play with um, to draw their attention Mm. um, if they want that. But, you know, this is important. This is why we are having a class in it. Um, So this is a slide. So why learn about anti-Black racist imagery in American history? So point one, it's important for us to recognize the history of sculpture and its imagery, especially in America. Point two, everything is created within a context that adds meaning to it, whether we choose that meaning or not. Mm. Point three, America and its history is part of our context when we create our artwork, right? So then I sit there and I talk about context. I ask where our school is located, where the state is located. Then we talk about North America. So we talk about all the context and how context always is influencing our artwork wherever we are, right? Because that's really important. And I think that is something that I think has changed, right? So it used to be like art is its own it's its own thing, right? It doesn't doesn't matter who the artist is, it can just be whatever you want it to be. But I feel like we need to be moving into a direction where we say context is important to our artwork and it does have influence on our artwork whether we choose that meaning or not, right? right? Yeah. So then I discussed the abolition of slavery, again, which we've mentioned before, is still legal in this country when punishment for a crime. Mm-hmm. And the subsequent uh Jim Crow laws, specifically to highlight how recent the civil rights era truly is, right? right? My mother was alive during uh, when during the 60s, right? Yeah, so was my dad. Yeah. So th- it's very recent, even if in a classroom it can feel like it was very far away, especially for students who are only teenagers, right? right? It seems like that was a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago, right? Then I move into a short video on the Jim Crow Museum with the founder and curator, Dr. David Pilgrim. And what he does is he connects the imagery of Jim Crow as a minstrel character to the set of laws and then to the broader system that built upon itself to create and sustain a society with a racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Namely, the way propaganda fed and legitimized the political oppression of Black Americans. Before this video, I also include a warning Um, This is the quote of the warning. In this video, Dr. Pilgrim will be showing us disturbing racist imagery and will be using derogatory names. They are being used in a historical setting to share the truth about American history. These are not words that we should repeat. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm very clear on before we see this stuff to 
put it in its context, right? Right. Yeah. Um, then I move on to a video with Harvard professor um, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who describes the image of the Black and Western art, a project begun in the 1960s to collect images of people of African descent in high Western art. I'm like sitting here in quotations every time I say the word West. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> He discusses the project as stemming from the civil rights era, looking for, quote unquote, noble depictions of black people. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, at this point, I want to note how I constructed this presentation specifically with a lot of videos of black experts speaking as a way of sharing black voices on the topic as a white teacher. So I'm not trying to share my personal perspective. Right. right? I'm trying to share the voices that feel like they are experts in this topic. Right. Right. Then we have a short discussion about the difference between caricature, so the things that we've seen in the Jim Crow Museum. So what the Jim Crow Museum is, is just a collection of objects, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like a collection of objects from that era. And then uh, depictions of art from the Harvard video that honor the subjects. So then we look at these images and then uh, I show them a long slideshow of sculptures by Black American women artists. And then I ask them these questions to think about. One, what are the aesthetic differences between these objects, right? We're an art classroom, right? So what are the just the aesthetic differences that we see in these two depictions mm -hmm. of, of people? Two, why is it important for us to look at sculptures by Black American artists, right? I'm specifically showing them sculptures by Black American artists, right? I'm not showing them sculptures, um, white artists. Right. And then um, three, question three, how can we learn from these images? Um, so the sculptures that I share with them are by Edmonia Lewis, Tina Allen, Elizabeth Catlett, and Winnie Owens Hart. Um, and then the day ends with a TED Talk video by artist Titus Kafar titled, Can Art Amend History? from 2017. And this video specifically is talking about the removal of Confederate monuments, mm. right? Or like, not specifically the removal, but like critiquing art and what it says, basically propaganda, right? right? It's, yeah. it's, it's like such a beautiful, so Titus Kafar is a painter himself. Right. He's like a very talented painter. And he just talks about how he's so it's such a beautiful video because I think it is it approaches it in such a delicate way where he's like, I'm not saying we need to like destroy this art. Mm -hmm. Right. What I'm saying is we need to change our perspective. Right. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, maybe we should. Just <laughs> but <laughs> But I think it's nice. I think it's nice thinking about my white majority school and how that can be a beneficial way of thinking about it. Right. Right. And then I, it's interesting to note a major element of this talk is the sculpture outside of the Museum of National History in New York City, which depicts Theodore Roosevelt riding a horse with a black man and a Native American man um, walking on either side of him, which was just announced last week that it was going to be removed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting time right now in the sense that I feel like a lot of these sculptures are finally getting taken. <laughs> like, yeah, and like, I feel like there's like, it's been so long of this like delicate approach mm -hmm. to like, art is valuable. We don't want to treat art with disrespect. And then finally, now we're like, no, we need to dismantle this stuff. Like, this is white supremacy. We need to get rid of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and that is. Um, I think we're ready for our conclusion. Um, so what did we learn? Uh, what are our goals? What are our takeaways? So I, I think 
what I'm trying to talk about is the way propaganda and it's really fascinating, right? Mm. I like I don't know where my students were getting this imagery from. Yeah. Like where are they getting these ideas? It's like really insidious the way propaganda can kind of weasel its way into our brains. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is that, like, these ideas become so normalized over time and so disconnected from their original source in a lot of cases that, I, you know, like, you know, we absorb a lot of hateful things without realizing it. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I find I run into that with, like, I mean, obviously, like, uh, I don't teach art, but, like, I, you know, when I do visual culture stuff, um, I teach film. I run into that a lot with my kids, too. Well, they'll just, like, say stuff or think stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. um, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't have a grand conclusion there. I just, it's, it is, like, the insidiousness of propaganda is that, um, in visual culture, um, and I think, like, this is why it's, the comics angle is, like, interest not interesting, but, like, critical to me is, like, um, mm-hmm. It gets absorbed. It gets absorbed, even if you feel like you are critical readers. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the incredible importance of teaching students to be critical consumers, but it is constant. You need to be constantly vigilant in your criticism Mm -hmm. while you're consuming this stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Remus. I really enjoyed hearing the comics perspective so now is the segment schools are the community Mm -hmm. um so in this segment we are talking about providence public schools um which has been experiencing a state takeover since november 1st 2019 which was towards the beginning of the current school year which is over now so i should delete that from the script um (laughs) so actually big news uh, the commissioner and Font Green and Superintendent Peters unveiled the turnaround plan for the schools. So essentially, the plan to fix the problems within the schools that caused the state takeover in the first place. I was in a special meeting um, where they gave community advisory board members and parent groups a special preview of the plan. Mm. So during the question and answer segment, I asked... This is a quote. Considering the recent decision by Minneapolis Public Schools to stop having school resource officers in their schools and that SROs criminalize our students, where is PPSD or Providence Public Schools Department in considering SROs being removed from our schools? So both the commissioner and superintendent seem to consider this a distraction from the problem at hand, which is solving what is happening, quote unquote, in our classrooms. The superintendent said he does not control the budget for the SROs, which is interesting. So that means that they that in Providence, they are fully funded by the police budget, which isn't always the case. Right. right? So but in Providence, they are. So they're fully funded cops. Um, He said that some SROs are, quote unquote, coaches and mentors. (laughs) The commissioner said she wants to focus on quote-unquote systemic racism, so clearly she does not consider police in our schools to be part of systemic racism. Now, we've talked about this in many episodes at this point, where SROs contribute directly to dropout rates of students. And part of the problem for why the state takeover of the province public school system happened was the dropout rates, right? And the racism in the schools. So it's extremely problematic. Um, so if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you'll know that there was recently a nine hour public (laughs) comment period from 5 p.m. to 2 (laughs) a.m. with the Providence City Council regarding the 2021 budget, demanding our city defunds the police and allocates those funds to the community. 
Here, again, I want to acknowledge the leadership of my Black community members, including local groups such as DARE and Providence Student Union, whose work we as allies are lifting up and supporting, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm not working in a bubble. Right. Um, Providence Student Union specifically is calling for the removal of SROs with the campaign hashtag counselors, not cops. Mm -hmm. So in order for them, it is interesting to acknowledge, right, that the SROs are free to the schools, Mm -hmm. right? So the schools removing them, in their eyes, they are removing a free resource, right? So if they get rid of the SROs, it's not like they are going to have that money freed to hire more counselors, right? There isn't a one-to-one ratio. But there is if we defund the police. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, in a a weird way, does that make it easier to get rid of SROs? Because you just, if you defund the police, there can't be SROs anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's like, we are calling the city hundreds, at least 500 people talk. Yeah. Every single person in this public comment period for the budget, the city budget, was saying we need to defund the police department. We want this money specifically for things like counselors in our schools that will actually help our students, unlike SROs who only criminalize our students. So I'm going to link um, local groups such as DARE, which is Direct Action for Rights and Equality, and also the Providence Student Union petition to support counselors, not cops. Please sign it. The more voices... We are working in a community, right? We need as many voices as possible Mm -hmm. um, working to get this done. And that's my update on Providence Public Schools. Thank you. Um, Are you signing the petition? Yeah, I was <laughs> signing the petition. Um, no, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing um, that. I mean, it's disappointing to hear that um, the commissioner and the superintendent aren't interested in addressing SROs, but it is. Ext- I'm really interested in the fact that it's a full. It's fully funded by the police because I feel like that's rare. Yeah, but um, yeah, I whew, woof. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the budget for them, I don't have it offhand, but it's in the millions. Yeah. With that money could definitely be used more oh, yeah. effectively. Anywhere else. <laughs> in community safety <laughs> and anywhere else. Yeah. If you bought like a $5 million boat and just put it in the center of town, that would be more effective than having the police. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm following, you know, I think, you know, I've I've found this time to be really, I am eternally grateful mm-hmm. for the amount of work of the Black people in the communities that I'm a part of. So not only the school mm-hmm. circles, but um, my city um, in comics. Yeah. There's so many different people who are really, really putting in so much work. Mm-hmm. and. I am unbelievably grateful. I feel it it is very empowering for me to speak up and try to amplify those voices. I deeply want to acknowledge how much work is going into that and how it makes it so people like me and other folks uh, can feel a lot more confidence Mm -hmm. um, in addressing these issues, which sucks because we should have been confident about it before. But I just really want to acknowledge how much labor is going into that yeah. and uh, how um, I'm really benefiting from it. So I feel like if you aren't going to webinars and if you aren't going to organization, you should. You should be going right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are working so hard on educating and you should be absorbing it. Um, yeah. No, because I, I have a, I was going to say, um, 
Are we in letters to the editor? Can we just say we're in letters to the editor? Yeah, we're in the our segment letters to the editor. <laughs> now we're in letters to the editor. <laughs> um, because I, I, you know, talking about that, um, I have a, I've been picking through, I've been reading um, the transcript for um, this Silver Press uh, fundraiser for Black Liberation um, called Revolution is Not a One-Time Event. That it was like a roundtable with um, Akugo, Emma Julu, Amrit Wilson, Lola Olafemi, Rukar, and uh, Che Gossett. And mm. um, in the opening sort of statement, Emma Julu talking about, was talking about protests and the fact that protests work, right? And it says, and says, and I think it's important for us to take that seriously, but also to understand that these protests do not happen spontaneously. These protests are a product of tireless organizing, unsexy, not fun. Everyone wants to carry a banner, but no one wants to do that 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night organizing. The protests you see in the street are about hard-won organizing victories to get those people on the streets that stretch back to the first generation of the Black Lives Matter movement in the 2013, but also, of course, even further than that, to the abolitionists of the 60s and 70s. And so, if nothing else, what we need to take from this moment is to understand that protests work, but also that social change takes a very long time. 50 years to get to this moment. And I think the lesson is that we are absolutely allowed to be discouraged and dispirited, but we have to keep our eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like such a, like 50 years to get to this moment is such like a powerful way yeah. of thinking about it. And also, um, uh, I also watched recently Abolition Can't Wait, a teach-in with uh, I went to that too. hashtag 8 to abolition. Yeah. And there was a quote by Rachel Herzing mm-hmm. where uh, she talked about abolitionists have been working since the Quakers, yeah. since the colonizing of North America was taking place, Quakers um, disagreed with the use of prisons and protest them and I really like that she acknowledged that this is never been new the moment prisons were invented people were opposing them right and this this is the legacy that we're working in yeah no it's amazing I think like I don't know it's just really amazing (laughs) to like see yeah I feel I feel it's like I feel equal parts like while empowering a white person isn't necessarily um right right yeah but like so i've been hesitating using the word empowering but it is it's like equally empowering and humbling right that we are there are so many people working with us Mm -hmm. (laughs) historically and currently yeah right and there's people in the future who we're working for including our students so i do find that very empowering but also deeply humbling it is and and it's it's been so it's like um in the in the context of the future and like just thinking of it, it's been also very reaffirming of like teaching and the importance of like education to me yeah because yeah, it's you yeah. know i i take liberatory pedagogy very seriously and so i am very like yeah happy to be able to contribute to the work in whatever way i can contribute to it basically totally and and we you should always and i want to empower everyone into finding their different c- contributions yeah. i mean just like Remus said not everyone like I have asthma I find it difficult to go I have been going to some rallies Mm -hmm. but I find it difficult um to go and I'm also scared we are in a pandemic but finding the different ways that you can contribute to your community Mm -hmm. so I've been helping print flyers I've been helping with these other things that because everyone does have a resource we do have skills that we can contribute so find what those are Mm -hmm. and find the people that you can give them to. Yeah. Um, I also want to say, <laughs> talking about education, um, this summer, I know a lot of uh, kids are still stuck at home. So I am going to be starting in all of the month of July. Um, comicarted.com and its YouTube channel um, is going to be doing, I'm going to be doing tons of videos of activities for all ages. Um, so 
if you're looking for art activities, if you have young people in your life, please share that. Um, I'm going to be making tons of videos this awesome. summer. Awesome. So. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I forget if we usually do this. In, I don't remember if we do this in the section. But I actually have a thing in July that, well, so I was in, um, last month, I was on a panel for Radiator Comics, um, which is. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, which is a Z, they're, um. A really, really cool zine distro um, out of Miami and Neil um, Bordeaux. Bordeaux. Thank you. Neil Bordeaux. Yeah. He used to run. He used to be in Chicago yeah. and used to is used to work at the Chicago zine store, mm-hmm. uh, which I forgot the name <laughs> it's of. It's okay. And, uh, he, he's... <laughs> and also uh, Cake. Yeah. Chicago Comic Alternative Comics Expo. Um, so Neil's wonderful. Neil's great. And he's really um, working very hard to sort of establish a network um, or a community for like South Florida cartoonists. Um, That's so Yeah. Great. So like his focus is like, you know, he, he does like a lot of distro for folks from South Florida, but he's also been doing like these panels and different events. Um, I've done like readings and workshops for him in the past. Um, and right now they're doing this series called Nuts and Bolts, which is like um, a series of panels on like different steps of making a comic basically so last month i was on the one for story development and then july 14th i am going to be on the one for penciling Ooh, yeah which i'm excited that's for awesome. yeah so it's it's a really cool series um and I, radiator is such a cool little place and neil's great so <laughs> definitely come check it I out mean, i mean all love i think i'm feeling more and more and more like we cannot be doing anything alone. Yeah. We need to be building community yeah. in every place that we can. Yeah. I feel more and more strongly. I don't think I've ever not felt that way, but I feel so yeah. strongly that we should not be working in a bubble. Well, and and it is it really is because the 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 stronger your like you have community ties and the community you're in, um, the more connected you are, the be- the easier it is for you to sort of come together and do things like abolition and transformative justice work. Absolutely. So, yep. Yeah. Get to know your neighbors that's the number one thing you gotta do um thank you so much um also thank you to the downtown boys for their song wave of history it's off their album full communism you can get it off their band camp Mm -hmm. uh oh right my turn um (laughs) (laughs) i always make you say no it's fine (laughs) you can head on over to drawingadialogue.com to view the citations for this podcast um drawing a dialogue is also hosted by comic art ed which is kathy's very good comic art ed website um thank you you can email us at drawing a dialogue at gmail.com and you can tweet us at draw a dialogue uh you can follow me at kathy g john c-a-t-h-y-g-j-o-h-n that is on instagram and twitter and you can follow me i finally changed my handle i've noticed (laughs) now you can follow me at remus maurice which is r-e-m-u-s uh m-a-u-r-i-c-e uh remus jackson wasn't available um and congratulations Remus. thank you and i i I set it up so that the the, i did that thing you told me to do so that if you go to the old handle it's still there it just tells you where to go (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. so good job good good seo um, I'm working on care. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you reading, Remus? Oh, right. So, I finally read B Stars. Oh, yeah. The um the the furry manga. No. <laughs> it's um it's a manga. Um I only read the first volume. Um I need to finish it. I've watched the first season on Netflix also, but the manga's has like a really lovely and charming style. I really like how the artist draws. Yeah, I just ordered the sixth book. It's coming in the mail now. Yeah, I've been I've been um 
breaking the law? Me? Working? No. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think if I've done anything else that I could mention, but no, I think that's, I, um, I finished, I did my, I defended my master's and then I stopped doing anything. So I haven't done anything. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Don't cut this out. Remus defended their masters. Everyone clap. (laughs) Yeah. I defended it. The first submission got accepted. Now I'm just waiting for the final submission stuff. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. But after that, I I just stopped doing anything. And I have to say, that's been really nice. <laughs> it's okay to take a break. I haven't had a break in like two and a half years. So I'm like extremely delighted. <laughs> Good time to read Beastars. Good time to read Beastars. All right. What are you reading? I have been reading a graphic novel titled Epsara Engine. It is a collection of short stories Ooh. by... Bishak Som. It was published by the Feminist Press at Cooney. Um, I'm about halfway through. It is utterly wonderful. It's very surreal, magical realism, but it still has like a lot. It has like sort of that like cheeky New Yorkness to it, where like people sit around and talk about fancy coffee or something. Like <laughs> I feel like there's this thing where New York, like New York, people in a city, not just New Yorkers in general, but like people in a city are like, where'd you get this goat cheese? And you're like, oh, this is from this like little place up in Vermont, you know, (laughs) but then, but then everyone else actually lives in those little places, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it's like, it's like this like beautiful, like little thing that a person from a city found. And it's just like, but it also is like surreal and kind of sexy. And so like, is a wonderful book that kind of criticizes that type of storytelling. It's oh, just Oh, that's great. so cool. Uh, it's titled Apsara Engine. And the art is beautiful. It's beautiful. These like ink washes and like these, like, I think the author must have gone to architecture school because all the, all the buildings are so beautifully drawn. Oh, so I uh, so highly cool. recommend it. Apsara Engine by Vishak Som. So thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. So solidarity. Yes. Yeah. Solidarity.